Well, hi, Ted. Hi, Margo. How are you doing? I'm fantastic since we played a fun game today. <laughs> that was fun. That was good fun. Great. So I'm so happy you can be on our show today. And I've been learning a lot about your work, your podcast, your blogs, and the work that you're doing in your site called Anima. Anima Learning, yeah. Anima Learning. So can you tell me a little bit about what you actually do? Sure. I'd be glad to do that. Well, first, let me say thanks for having me. It's, it's fun to be here and to, to uh, get to chat with you. Uh, but so my work is about helping people connect with uh, full presence and connect with their ability to respond resourcefully in any given situation. And I'm using four ways of learning to do that. One is called growth mindset. One is contemplative practice, which for me includes mindfulness meditation. One is applied improvisation, taking the principles and practices of improv and applying them in non-theater settings, and then positive reinforcement. <clears throat> so I'm using those four, combining, mixing, matching, taking elements from each, and helping people have experiences, learning experiences. My ideal is when we're doing it collaboratively uh, so that they can be fully present in their lives for whatever they need to do or say or act upon. And uh, I'm most recently integrating the teachings of a woman named Patsy Rodenberg, who is a voice and acting coach in the UK. And I've just spent a month with her in New York City. I'll spend another month with her next summer. Uh, but she's a lot about body, breath, and voice, and how those things play into full presence. Absolutely. Well, yeah, I, I used to work as a dance therapist decades ago in another mm. lifetime. And uh, movement is so incredibly powerful. And in improv, I'm basically an improviser who meditates occasionally. Mm -hmm. But you, I think, were meditating for quite a while, haven't you? Yeah, I mean, I, I've been interested in things spiritual and mysterious since I was a little kid. And so, you know, I think I first learned some form of meditation when I was 11 or something. Um, but I've had a lot, of a lot of exposure to different traditions and different pathways and different ways of meditating um, through my studies and my experiences. But I've been really quite involved in the mindfulness movement for well, maybe eight years or so now, more directly, and, and have been teaching mindfulness uh, outside of a religious context for that time as well. It's a wonderful application. And in therapy world, it's all about mindfulness today. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's become so big in therapy. And if there's anybody out there who doesn't quite understand what mindfulness is, can you describe it for us? Yeah, I mean, I usually rely on a definition from John Kabat-Zinn, who's uh, a medically trained guy who, who created the Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction Program at the University of Massachusetts Medical School back in 79, I believe it was. But his definition, definition of mindfulness is that it's paying attention to the present moment on purpose with curiosity and kindness to things as they are. So paying attention, meaning we, we choose to put our attention in a certain place. It's always somewhere, but we're choosing to pay it somewhere, to place it somewhere on purpose. So there's, there's an intentionality with it, seeing that there's a, there's a reason to do it. Um, to the present moment, so not so focused on the past or the future where we often live in regret or anxiety, or maybe it's nostalgia and anticipation, but saying, can we come back to this, to right now? Um, and I, this is my favorite part of the definition, with curiosity and kindness, 
So rather than with judgment or tension or trying to make things a different way, it's like, huh, what's, what is it that's happening? Can I be kind to myself? Can I be kind to other people? Can I be kind to my surrounding? And what can I learn? What can I notice? To things as they are, not how we want them to be, not how they used to be. Um, not you know, we, we so often fight how things are. And fighting reality is a losing game, as they say. Um, so paying attention to the present moment on purpose with curiosity and kindness to things as they are. That's usually how I how I refer to it. Um, it's, it's an awareness that's got an element of compassion to it. It's not just this free-floating, bare spotlight, but it's, it's got this element of playfulness or curiosity or willingness to engage with what's around. With kindness. I mm-hmm. love that. Mm-hmm. And when you say that, I can hear so many applications to improv theater. Oh, and sure. Some of the connections that you've made to improv. Can you tell us a little bit about that? And maybe even a game that you like to use to help people with mindfulness. Yeah, well, there are so many, so many applications. Um, at a minimum, you can talk about where is your attention in a scene and, and playing around with where am I going to put my attention? Am I going to put it, uh, am I going to let my attention be on my, my mind telling me whether I'm a good improviser or not, worrying about that? or wondering what I look like to the audience, or am I going to put my attention on my partner's face to see what emotions are there or what reactions I'm noticing? Or am I going to put it on my breath? Can I maintain 50% of my awareness on my breath and my feet so that I stay grounded and 50% on my partner? Right? So there's all sorts of places to play with attention that way. That's one. Um, of course, there's so much about being in the present moment um, if we're if we're caught up in the past or the future, maybe there's times to do that a tiny bit. Like we need to remember what has happened in a scene, and it helps to have some idea of where it might be going. But you have to keep letting go of it because it's always changing. So you know, if we're doing a scene and and we've established that uh, that we're going to church with a fancy pair of shoes on, and then <laughs> all of a sudden it turns out that we're we're not at church, but we're in a Target store. Like, I have to let go of that church. The church is no longer happening. Um, so i got to stay present with that. Um, and and the one of my favorite ways that they combine is that sort of notion of um, to things as they are, not how we want them to be. And so that, that's just a constant, constant practice in any improv scene is putting something forward boldly and then letting go. Putting it forward boldly and letting it go. So whether I want that scene to be about the church or not, it's no longer about that. So I've got to let it go, paying attention to things as they are. And that word acceptance really rings out to me. I work in a lot of recovery, uh, 12-step recovery situations and yes. people. Yes. And acceptance is the key that's in the, one of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And acceptance, I think, is the first key in learning improv for most people as well. But to genuinely accept people as they are, even if the get they give you or the offer or whatever may not be where you want to go. I love one word story for that reason. Mm. Uh, no matter what you're thinking, by the time you have to say a word, it could be something you know totally different than where you want it to go. Yeah, and I think it's really important to distinguish between acceptance and approval. Uh, right? yes. So, you know, I can accept the idea that's been put forward as part of the scene. I don't have to like it. I probably actually will have more fun if I choose to like it as well. But it can happen 
And I, I, whether I like it or not doesn't matter. It still happened. And so that's where that acceptance comes in, right? Accepting that it did happen, accepting that reality is what it is, uh, makes a big, big difference. But I think sometimes people get caught up on this principle in improv and in meditation about, I have to accept everything because I don't like it. Does that make sense? Yeah, it reminds me of about the practice of forgiveness. Right. When we forgive, we may not like what that thing was. Yes. But forgiving is about the process of forgiving, right. not whether we approve or disapprove. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So you had a very interesting career, and I think you said you started acting. What was your first role? What What was your first play in school? Uh, my first role was in, I want to say, eighth grade. I was King Henry VIII and the Prince and the Pauper. <gasps> wow. And I remember, I remember I got to make a scepter out of like, some maybe it's like a paper towel roll or something and we glued a tennis ball on top of it and then a, a cross and we painted the whole thing with silver spray paint and uh, i got to wear a big blue robe and a crown and yeah it was kind of fun but that was eighth grade and then in high school i had lead roles in different plays my, my favorite my two favorite roles were uh, i got to play the henry fonda role in 12 angry men wow um we called, wow. it, we called it 12 Angry Jurors because we had women in the cast as well. Um, and then I was in a play called Seven Keys to Baldpate where I was the, the guy who was the hero. He was a writer and he went up to a hotel and all this crazy stuff ensued. It was a really fun madcap play. So those are my two favorite roles. But yeah, it was in high school that I did my rehearsed acting. And was your family into the arts at all? Anybody else? How big of a family did you come from? Um, I, I'm one of three kids. My uh, Neither of my parents is really into, like they don't, my dad plays a little bit of piano, but neither of them sings or does theater. But my grandmother on my mother's side was a drama professor at Curry College, and she had gone to Yale. So, you know, that was in the 30s probably that she was there, early 30s. Um, so she was kind of ahead of her time, but she was really into Shakespeare. And it's been very interesting this summer, as I studied with Patsy Rodenberg, who is also very into Shakespeare, that I've been connecting with my grandmother, who I wasn't very close with. But, you know, I'm kind of doing a lot of the things that she was doing. I was talking about it with my mom recently, and she said, I remember my mom used to take me to her drama rehearsals, and she'd be coaching the actors on their voices and their addiction and yeah, so I'm, I'm kind of living out a family path without even having realized it. That's amazing. So, do you still perform? I do. I do uh, perform improvisation sometimes, not as often as I'd like because I travel a lot. Um, but when I get the chance to, absolutely, yeah. And you're out really in California, in the yeah, Bay Area. I'm based just south of San Francisco, so I'm I'm most active in the San Francisco improv community, BATS improv in particular. I'm going to be uh, actually chatting with uh, Patricia uh, Madden, Madsen yeah. um, later. And that is she the person who helped you connect to improv? Is She is, yeah. I had uh, My first class was when I was a student at Stanford as a freshman. It was a dorm-based class with someone who had studied with her. But then I got so turned on by it that I immediately took her class the next semester next quarter. And then I became a TA for her the rest of my undergraduate years. 
And then when I came back for graduate school again, she had started an advanced improv class and, and a group called the Stanford Improvisers. So I did both of those and I TA'd that class. So I was sort of as much Patricia as I could get while I was there. And now she's a very dear friend and mentor and we talk often, get together often. Her book is really lovely, the Improv brilliant. Wisdom book. So many brilliant things in yes, it. Yes. What an introduction. And then you took a sabbatical for a while and you traveled? or Yeah, I was teaching religious studies and philosophy at a private boarding school in western Massachusetts and um, kind of got my improv fire rekindled when I went to an international summer school in Calgary. Um, that was two weeks and um, we just had a blast. And so I started wanting to teach it again and it became part of my interest for my sabbatical. So in 2012, I had the chance to take a year off and um, that was where I really developed these four elements that became part of my business. And so I was really diving into each of those. And so I went out to California for a couple months and hung out with the people at BATS, took a lot of classes, made some more, deepened some friendships, hung out with Patricia and uh, got that a lot further. Is that when you went to Glacial National Park? That was just this past month I did that. Oh, it was? Because I, I, I have, I, I suggest our listeners, I'll put the link up there and listen to your wonderful podcast with Lisa. Thank you. But tell me about that. You said it was so beautiful about, and you traveled all over the world. About Glacier? You, you wanna, you're wondering about Glacier National Park? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that it's, it's funny. My, my dad and stepmom took a trip when they got married, their honeymoon trip. They did a 10-week trip around the country in a camper. And their favorite place then and all the places they saw was Glacier National Park. So I, I've had it in my to-do list for 35 years. And I'd never been up there. And so I was driving across country to come from San Francisco to New York for this program. And uh, I decided, you know what? Let's go up north. So I went to visit a buddy in Seattle. And then on our way across, we, we stopped, at, uh, stopped at Glacier and it's just magical. I mean, you know, these mountain, breathtaking mountains and lakes and, and glaciers and snow and these roads that curve in and around. It, it's, uh, it's quite holy. And it's, it's like, if you've ever been to Yosemite, it's like Yosemite in that you can't quite believe that it's as beautiful as it is. And you think, oh, this is the most beautiful place I've ever seen. And then you go around the corner and then you think the same thing again. And you go around another corner and you think the same thing. It just keeps going. So, that's beautiful. And, and uh, nature is a great place to practice mindfulness. Well, yeah, I think there's a number of reasons for that. One, because uh, there's a lot of health benefits to it, of just the fresh air and the, the quiet and, and the sounds and all that. But when we're in nature, I think it brings us to a different kind of presence. You know, when we're walking on uneven ground, we have to be present in our bodies in a way that we don't when we're walking on pavement. When there's a risk that there might be a bear or a rattlesnake around us, we have to be tuned in in a way that we don't have to when we're living in our air-conditioned boxes. You know, and um, so it calls us to that through our bodies. Yeah. You know, yeah. And, then, and then we get the thrill, that thrill of being alive in that way. No wonder we like being in nature. Of course, you know, sometimes it's like, ah, another mosquito or, you know, oh, another plant that's making me itch. But that's part of it all, too. You definitely need focus and attention. Absolutely. 
I was in Colorado a few weeks ago, and um, but I wanted to share with you, although this show's about you, not me, but the most beautiful place that I use for my, you know, my kind of go-to visualization happy place is on the cliffs of Eslin, mm. looking at those rocks and that ocean pounding majestically. Lovely. I know that's a place you've been to before, um, probably. But to me, that having that kind of memory and being able to, I, I work with visualization. Do you use visualization at all in any of your work? Um, pretty rarely, pretty rarely, but sometimes. That's not staying completely in the now, I suppose, but it could be. Well, I think that there's, I think there are valuable um, realms to explore inside us, you know, that um, either for getting in touch with our creativity or our insights or intuition, but also visualization, visualization is a powerful learning tool. So, you know, it's like if I'm trying to learn how to shoot free throws better, imagining myself shooting free throws effectively and seeing it go in is going to be really helpful for my ability to shoot free throws. So I could visualize myself being on stage, doing a great scene, having a great time with my partner, having the audience laugh and hearing that and or whether they're laughing or having their breath taken away, whatever the goal is for that particular night or scene. Um, I think that would help me do better improv too. So there's value in that for sure. Now the word anima. An anima. Anima, anima, yeah. Anima. Um, would you define that for our listeners again? Yeah, well, I usually, whenever people ask me what it means, I usually ask them what comes to mind for them. So maybe I'll, I'll do that with you if you don't mind. So what, when you see that anima, what comes to mind for you? Anima and anim, animus. Uh -huh. uh, so the Jungian psychological terms. Yes, that's the first thing I see. Mm -hmm. And spirituality. Okay. Yeah, a lot of folks mention something about spirit, which makes sense because the root of the word anima is breath or spirit in Latin. Um, or I should say, in Latin, the word anima means breath or spirit. And so it's definitely connected. I think of it as that which animates so wow. that, that force, anima, is that force that brings things to life. And so, you know, what is it that turns a plant towards the sun? What is it that tells a salmon to swim upstream? What is it that tells us to find a life partner or express ourselves in words or um, do something meaningful on the planet while we're here? What is it that makes us move? You know, this is like lifeless pile of flesh and blood and here comes this force through it, and all of a sudden it's, hey, it's curious, it wants to explore, it wants to connect. So I think of anima as that within us that animates us, brings us to life. And so I, I imagine my work as feeding that, uh, finding that force, feeding it, fostering it, helping people bring it out into the world. And as I'm looking at your four quadrants, I can see how that can apply in all the four quadrants that mm -hmm. you work in. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, um, and you're a meditator. Of course, of course. Lots of different types, but I like to do some, some sort of uh, mindful movement and sitting every morning. And I've just recently introduced some vocal work into my morning routine. So always adding, always adding new elements to the, to the meditation. I like to write my journal. Like if I could write my journal every day, play some music every day, like, you know, my meditation, oh, what do you play? I play guitar. Yeah. My meditation could take like four hours and I'm like, okay, time to go to sleep. <laughs>
eventually got to get out and do some stuff with other people. Well, and you grew up in Massachusetts, so you had kind of an outdoor life growing up, didn't you? Did you? Yeah, or- the, the most outdoors time I spent was when I lived on a farm from five to nine years old uh, in southern New Hampshire. Oh, where, where in southern New Hampshire? Just outside of Keene. I lived in Peterborough. Oh, for yeah, a while. right. So we were right there. Um, and, and then I worked at summer camps in Rhode Island and Vermont and Maine. So uh, I spent a lot of time outdoors during the summer. Because that, and that's where we play. And there's so much play in improv as well. Yeah. Uh, being I, able to play, connect with that inner child. I, I almost don't like to use the word anymore, inner child, because I'm trying to help people find their inner adult. But there's still something to be said for connecting to the childlike wonder. Yes. And that's improv can be sometimes. It's like, wow, you yeah. know? And when you're really connected and focused and paying attention. Well, it's getting back to that curiosity and kindness, right? I think that most play is curious and kind. It's saying, hey, let's choose this um, arbitrary obstacle to try to overcome it. You know, so it's like, okay, I'm going to put the, I'm going to put the cup on that side of the room and see if I can throw the, the jacks into the cup. Like, mm-hmm. well, why did I choose that obstacle? I could walk over to the cup and put the jack in the cup, you know. But the play is in the creating some something to try to get around. Um, but yeah, and I don't think I don't think play is solely the province of children. I think that they haven't been ground down like adults have. Um, so they have more access to it, but I think it's part of being human. Absolutely. There's a whole actually play movement that really started around the 70s. With, um, and Bernie DeCoven is a friend of mine that's part of that, the New Games Foundation, and a lot of people out of the um, first Earth Day creating right. these games. It's right. similar to improv as well. But I want to backtrack. I want to get back to spirituality sure. and improv. Because for me, I see a big connect with spirituality, kindness, genuineness, different aspects of spirituality in improv. And I'd like to hear your point of view on that. Yeah, there's, a, there's, a, there's something I thought about quite a bit. I usually frame it as improvisation as a spiritual practice hmm. um, because I like the notion of, of practice, something that you go to regularly, that you're improving, you're never reaching a destination, but you're doing it because you believe in there's an inherent value in it. Um, but I did a talk once it's, that's online, and folks could find it on my website, um, Improvisation as Spiritual Practice, uh, that I did at the Applied Improvisation Network conference, and that was a couple of years ago in Montreal. And you know, I talked about, I think it was seven different ways that improv can be seen as a form of spiritual practice. One was as a mindfulness practice. Um, but other ways you know, are connection with this kind of divine creativity, this notion of divine play, or lila, as a Hindu word for that, Sanskrit word for that, is to say there's something in the universe that has this natural playfulness, and improv helps us connect to that. Um, But it's also a great practice for noticing interconnectedness uh, that most religious and spiritual traditions talk about, acknowledge, live, interconnectedness that we're, we're we don't exist on our own and you know unless you're doing a solo show and even then really improvisation puts you in immediate contact with the fact that you're not alone so even if i'm doing a solo show i'm still responding to the environment 
to the audience, to the lights. You know, this, there's an interrelationship there. So that's another way. And then coming back to the Jungian stuff, Jungian psychology, improv is also a great way to get in touch with shadow. You know, the parts of ourselves that are hidden, that we're less comfortable with. Well, you know, I can play villains on stage that I would never want to be in real life, but that I have within me. And so it's a, it's a safe, con- safer container to kind of get to some of that stuff. And especially if I'm with people that I trust and, and know and who have that same kind of spaciousness, I can, I can find something different that way. There's a lot of ways that improv can be a valuable spiritual practice. And you belong to mindfulimprov.org, I think, as well. That's mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. people who are practicing improv, but also very interested in practicing in the mindful sense as well. Yeah, I mean, that's been that's really been my focus the last couple of years is that intersection. And um, my colleague, Lisa Rowland, and I, she's an improviser in San Francisco, and she and I have a podcast called Monster Baby, A Curious Romp Through the Worlds of Mindfulness and Improvisation. And, and it's it's wonderful, by the way. I enjoy yeah. listening to it. So, yeah. Thank you. That's very kind. We um, we love doing it, and it's just so rich. You know, we've got we've done I think twenty eight episodes now, and we've got a whole bunch more that we want to do. And it's, it's a question of when we have the time to get together to do them. But um, but it's just such a rich combination to explore. You know, there's so many ways to 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 dive in. We've we've talked about. Um, relationship to change and we've talked about relationship to failure um harmony uh <laughs> we cover all sorts of stuff there but you know it's like you could pick a topic and say okay how does mindfulness relate how does improv relate and then there's usually some overlap between those two that really provide some neat uh insights when you combine them your podcasts are really very excellent most mm. excellent and this is lovely i can't wait to meet her as well so yeah, she is a good Yes, fantastic. Yeah. So if you could do anything in the world, what would you want to do? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, at this point, I would like to be part of a team that was traveling around the world into to different settings um, and helping people develop this kind of presence that we've been talking about, um, curious, kind, fully integrated presence, but in particular in an ensemble setting. So if you've got a group of people who are each committed to being present in this way with each other, what that, what does that then make possible for that group? So that could be a theater performance group. It could be a, a, a team within a corporation. It could be a family. It, you know, who knows what the, what the group is. But I really love, I love collaboration. I love working with other people. I love being part of a team myself. So to be part of a a high presence team that was teaching high presence would would be lovely. So I'm working on that, and then um, I just I love to teach, and so I want to be. Uh, I'm in the process of forming some playful mindfulness courses and some presence courses to be able to offer to people wherever I am. Um, so I'd like to be doing that too. Well, the idea of traveling with an ensemble, talk about being able to become animated, mm-hmm. sharing ideas in a group of like-minded people. It's like a boinga, boinga, boinga. And I, I hope you do proceed with that venture. I was actually thinking about like a Bob Hope tour kind of thing with improv. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and for me, for me, oh, go ahead. 
I was just saying military folks really need that as well. Sure. All these sure. women, yeah. 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 Well, one of the things that's interesting for me is that for uh, the improv is part of it, but it's not the whole thing, right? It's there's so much that's rich and valuable in it, and there are other insights that come from these other angles that improv doesn't quite get to. Um, or improv can get a bit untethered and kind of manic and like, hey, it's about funny comedy stuff. And I love that balance that mindfulness offers to say, okay, what if we ground this improvisation in the moment, in full humanness, now what emerges, right? And then the flip side, I love, I wouldn't want to just do mindfulness either because it often gets kind of somber or pious. And, and I like the playfulness and the interactivity that improv bring in. Yeah, just even zip zaps up is fun sometimes. That's right. Uh, mind meld, I call it. And, and musical improv is so much fun. So um, I'm kind of bouncing all over the place. You'll excuse me for that. But, uh, That's right. We can follow. I, all right. So going back to the lady, Patricia, that you studied with this year, and what do you have some purpose? I hate to say purpose, but what do you want to get out of this? Where 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 do you see that, that training taking you in the subsequent trainings with her? Yeah, well, so, okay, so... I had studied with Patricia Ryan Madsen when I was in college, and she wrote Improv Wisdom, as we talked about before. This woman this summer, her name is Patsy Rodenberg. And my hope with her um, was to, to develop a much keener eye and ear and sense within my own body uh, for what, what are the ways that the body, the breath, and the voice integrate together, and how do they relate to our ability to move into the world with... Um, with passion and impact, but not uh, overbearing impact, but you know, meaning. And she calls that, that kind of presence, second circle presence. She talks about three circles of awareness. The first circle is kind of turned in on itself, hidden away. Third circle is brash and pushes out and kind of um, trumpets itself in an arrogant way. And second circle is grounded, connected, willing to change and be changed. And so Patsy's work is about developing that second circle presence. I wanted to get much more skillful at being able to look at what are the physical and breath and voice components of that presence so that I could then teach that much more effectively. So for me, working with Patsy Rodenberg was a way to say, um, what happens when we get really tuned into the ways that the body and the breath and the voice are contributing to this kind of presence? or taking away from it. And so developing a keen uh, ear, <clears throat> excuse me, developing a keen ear and eye for seeing in other people and sensing in myself, when am I here? When am I not here? What ways am I trying to hide or protect myself? What ways are other people trying to do that? Um, knowing that those skills would be a way for me to do better and deeper work with other people, whatever I'm doing. And the voice as well. Correct. Yes. Yes. And I've always been interested in, in vocal stuff. I like playing with accents and I like singing, uh, but I've not learned a whole lot about it. I've not studied it. And so it was really electrifying to work with Patsy because she, uh, she's like a, like a Yoda. I mean, she, she can have 20 people in the room doing vocal exercises. And some people are saying one, two, three, four, you know, and counting out numbers and other people are doing, Shakespearean texts and no matter where of comfort, no man speaking and, and other people are just breathing and, and she can hear somebody across the room and notice that 
from the way they sound that their hips are not under their are not above their feet. It's you just like, how is that possible? So cool. So cool. So learning from somebody with that keen of insight about all those structures and how they impact our ability to be in the world uh, is really um, thrilling, really thrilling to be with somebody like that. And you've worked with a lot of people so far in your career, a lot of people. And is there any, I, I like this question because as a teacher, I found sometimes I'd have a student that was kind of a challenge. They, even though they were totally mentally and auditorially capable, they never wanted to follow the direction I gave. And I heard Viola Spolin said, there may be a hundred ones, you know, a hundred ways you know how to play a game and someone else might know 101. But still, it throws off the rest of the troop if somebody's doing something so contrary to the game they're in. Right. Can you, do you, have you ever had an experience like that? Or? <laughs> well, I've certainly <laughs> had experiences like that in classes where, you know, people weren't on board. And for the most part, I try to remain curious and kind with those things when they come up and keep the mind frame of, well, this is what's happening. And so we can learn with it. We can use it in the same way we'd something unpleasant might happen in an improv scene. And if we accept that reality and build from it, then we can find something even better. Occasionally, there are experiences where it's just like, gee, I wish that didn't happen. I wish that hadn't happened. I think our experience would have been better for that not happening. You know, I once had a student in one of my classes who I had an intuition that I shouldn't accept her, but I really wanted to be generous. I knew she was a bit uh, bit of an oddball and a bit resistant in some ways. I had the sense I shouldn't accept her, but I did. And she ended up undermining the safety of the group, and we never went where we would have gone without her. And, you know, okay, so we learn from that, and we do our best, and we go forward. Um, yeah. I think these principles help in any situation like that, but they're not foolproof. Intuitive understanding. I've had experience where somebody will come to see me for help, and when they walk into my room, even before they've sat down, I know this isn't going to work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'll say, but I'll, uh, the story I tell myself is, well, don't worry, I'm sure it will. Just forget about that. Right. And inevitably, it does. So trusting our instincts is a really powerful thing as well. Yeah, well, the tricky part for me is that I think that my intuition or my insight that way or my, my leaning is right about 80% of the time, you know? And so I don't want to sell those 20%, those other 20% short or dismiss them out of hand because sometimes those might be the best lessons, but yeah, it's, it's a tricky balance. It's always, always one to work with. Well, I know that you're coming up to speak at AIN, applied mm-hmm. uh, and you're, what is the name of your talk again you're giving this year for 2017? I believe it's a Way of the Mindful Improviser. It's a day-long workshop, pre-conference workshop. That's going to be lovely. That's yeah. a great group of people. It's a lovely group. It's a, it's a fun, fun family to be a part of. This would be my, let's see, I think my first one was 2011, maybe? I don't know. I've gone to six or something. And, and what else is on your up-and-coming calendar. You're going to be doing some things out yeah. of San Francisco Bay Area. Yeah, I'm teaching some mindfulness courses this fall. Um, I'm really working on developing my next iteration. So, you know, I've got some groups that I work with and speak with. I speak at a conference, the group called EQ Schools, Emotional Intelligence, and they've got a conference in Sacramento I'll be at. 
that sort of thing. We're going to be working on the podcast, of course. Um, but my primary interest right now is developing what comes next for me and articulating that because this integrating this work with Patsy Rodenberg <clears throat> is going to be a project, you know, to find what's the right language and how much of an emphasis do I want that to be versus other things I've been doing. Are you going to the Applied Improvisation Network conference? Can't go this year. I, I became a member several years ago, and I, I love all. I've met a lot of interesting people that way. But I'm going to Chicago for the first. Um, it's called uh, Yes and Mental Health and Psychology Conference in Chicago, September 2017. Great. I hope you'll tell me about that. I, I, I know that's happening, and I know that's going to be interesting. I won't be able to go, but. Yeah, well, I'm going to take a little recorder with me and, and be like the man on the street interviews. Remember Steve? You probably don't yeah. remember Steve Allen, but anyway, I'm hoping to do some interviews while I'm there as well on the go because it's going to be fantastic. It's right. going to be a wonderful group of people. Yes. And um, I would love to study with you. Do you ever come back to the East Coast and study? Or Yeah, Lisa and I have done, um, have done retreats on the coast of Maine. We didn't do one this year, but we did one the previous two years, and we've got another one scheduled for... June of 2018. It's outside of Brunswick. It's an absolutely gorgeous spot. Um, and that's a, a five-day workshop. And so we do mindfulness and yoga practice in the morning, and we play improv games all day and reflective exercises, contemplative practice, and have, have meals and stay in the same cottage together. So um, you can find that on the website, too. We don't have the, the links for this registration and sign-ups aren't up yet, but the description of the, of the program is there. Well, I'll be sure to put all the links we mentioned. I'll be linking like crazy. <laughs> Lincoln like like Lincoln like Abraham. Lincoln like some logs. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time. I really am so happy we got to know each other, and I look forward to maybe speaking to you again. And I know I'm going to talk to Lisa at some point, but maybe sometime a joint interview would be fun. Sure, that'd be great. Thank you, Margot. It's a pleasure to meet you and get to chat with you as well. I, I'm excited about what you're doing, and clearly you're putting together some some big questions and finding some interesting answers. So it's great, great work that you're doing. Thank you. Goodbye. Thank you. Take care. <laughs>